This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 235, brought to you in association with Smart and enlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Eva Zhang, CEO of Alipay UK, to talk about fintech in China. Dedicated fintechers, such as yourselves, with your fingers on the pulse, may have heard of Alipay, founded near 20 years ago by Jack Ma as part of the Alibaba group, but later split off. They overtook PayPal as long ago as 2013 to become the world's largest online slash mobile payments platform. They serve an astonishing, in excess of 1.3 billion users and 80 million merchants, which is quite impressive and must take some counting. Furthermore, the Alipay app doesn't just do payments, but a wide range of functionalities, including ride sharing, travel bookings and medical appointments, as I was amazed to find out this morning in my in-depth research, also known as reading a very poorly edited article on Wikipedia. Definitely a fintech one should know about. Furthermore, those of you who studied geography at school, which probably gets fewer and fewer, may have heard of China. It's quite a large country, east of Suez, with an ancient history and culture. Less ancient and up to date, it's either, I think, the world's largest economy or second largest economy, about to be the first or some such. Even if China isn't the world's largest fintech market or world's largest economy or anything like that, I do recall Peter Renton, founder of Lendit, about some five years ago on this podcast, giving us an overview of fintech around the world, as his conferences at the time covered the world, one annual event being in China, saying that if you wanted to know about the future of fintech, just go to China. So without further ado, let's dive into what is perhaps the world's largest market for fintech in conversation with the world's largest payment platform. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Eva. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much for the invitation. I really enjoyed your previous podcast. Oh, excellent, excellent. Yes, well, it's um, it's rare that people say they enjoy the podcast. <laughs> I do, actually. <laughs> you're very polite, so you're showing top Chinese characteristics already, which is <laughs> be flattering. And um, as listeners may know, I have a little connection with uh, China and Chinese culture myself, being, um, I was about to say on my spare time, but I'm not, not, not actively active at the moment. A Sifu myself, which is probably untranslatable into English, but it's something between teacher and father in um, a type of Qigong called Jamjong. And as a, uh, a side effect of that, in a little known fact, my name is on a, on a plaque on a really important cemetery outside um, Beijing, actually, called the Babaoshan, sorry for my lack of Chinese pronunciation, Revolutionary Cemetery, which is full of revolutionary heroes. And this is not because I'm a ghost of a, a revolutionary hero, but also these days that it includes cultural icons, such as my Sigung, my master's master in simple English, Professor Yu Yong Nian, who used Jamjong, which is a system of Qigong involving standing still, some listeners may have heard of it, stand like a tree, to cure uh, chronic health conditions and things like this in, um, I think it was the Beijing Railway Hospital. Yes, yeah, so anyway, there's a plaque there dedicated to Professor Yu, and uh, my name is on it. So my, my name it exists just outside Beijing, and you can actually see it on YouTube if you find the right YouTube. Yeah, that's incredible, Mike. Actually, um, as you mentioned, the Qigong, so like a little bit in, uh, like actual information here. So when I joined the Alibaba group, I think uh, almost seven years ago, that uh, we had about one week of like, you know, um, uh, like a, a new beginner uh, courses. So like, you know, uh, it is one week of different uh, like, you know, uh, studies. And at the end of that week, actually, we had one hour of Qigong classes. You know, that is a very interesting way to tap into that culture. Yes, yes. And mm-hmm. and it's probably like learning the language, which I haven't, but I have friends who have learned Chinese. I think you can only really understand a different culture by learning their language or by learning one of their arts in a traditional fashion. So I learned in a <laughs> traditional fashion, which requires some patience. There is this sort of Chinese martial arts saying, or maybe Chinese saying in general, eat bitter, uh, which is a 
sort of basically means you suffer first, eat bitter first, sweet later. So you have to do all the suffering, which is something that the West has, has forgotten because now the West wants the state just to give them sweets uh, without the eat bitter. So that's actually the one reason I don't teach it really, which is that if I taught it, I'd teach it in a quotes, relatively Chinese way. <laughs> None of my students would, uh, would last. They all run away. Now, as part of that, and having various trips around China, one of the things I think that people who haven't been to China don't understand very much is that China is amazingly, amazingly, amazingly vast and amazingly, amazingly, amazingly complex. And um, this is a point I've made when I was talking about Africa. The lack of education in the West these days is, is truly appalling. And there is a view that all Africans are the same. Well, they're, they're not. It's a, it's a continent. West Africa is completely different from East Africa. And there's huge differences there. But I think in the age of sort of Twitter, everybody's got a sort of three word understanding of a cliche of everything. And in the same way, for people who haven't been to China or studied anything in China, there's a tendency to think, oh, yes, there's Chinese and they're in China. But actually, if you go there, it's vast. And I, I travelled around Yunnan, for example, the southern southwesty province, um, which was just vast. I mean, it's probably bigger than any country in, in Europe itself. And that's just one of many, many provinces. And going back to my Zhangjiang lineage, my Sifu, Master Lam Kan Chuan, is from Hong Kong. He's Cantonese. He's shorter than me. But my Sigang, my, my master's master, Professor Yu, was right from the north of China. And he's probably taller than me, a huge bear of a man. So the people vary, and not just that, but um, the cuisines vary. So the cliche, that, you know, is, is rice. Yes, there is rice in China. But actually, if you go to the north, there's also quite a lot of um, wheat. So I don't know either how you would try and, in a, you know, just two or three or four minutes, give people who've never been to China and who don't know anything about it some sense of the sort of huge regional variation. I mean, if you were to spend a year traveling around China, you'd have a very different experiences. Although with a commonality, of course. In, indeed, yeah. So, Mike, you actually uh, tap into a very interesting topic. So, for example, that actually, like your Shigong, I actually, I was born and grew up in northern China as well. So, my hometown is somewhere north of Beijing. It's actually where the Winter Olympic happened last year. So um, as someone who was grew up in northern China, that uh, and then I married to a family. So my um, husband's family is from the south of China, which is not far away from Shanghai province. So it's a, a city called Nanjing. So when I went to their family, actually there are different dishes that I have never seen, uh, like tried before when I was grew up in, uh, in northern China, and there are different habits, you know, like uh, different ways of doing things, even that, uh, like, you know, with the same family. And actually, Nanjing is not that far from the central China uh, yet. So that's already, already the difference. And then actually, you mentioned about Yunnan. So actually, a couple of years ago, I had a beautiful trip in Yunnan myself. So I still remember that I landed with a flight in Kunming, so which is the capital city of Yunnan province. And when I was trying to get to another famous place, Dali, so I hired a car. So basically driving about six, seven hours all the way. It's like the same distance I drive from London to Edinburgh, probably that distance. But, you know, um, I actually was inside of a province from one city to another city is already six to seven hours so that can give people some idea of like you no know, the geographic vastness of the country yes and i think perhaps in the in the uk i mean um, in the uk we didn't used to eat out at all almost at all in the 60s and 70s but so-called chinese takeaways came into fashion and it may be thinking about it with hindsight i mean my master came here in the 70s which is that the uh, british experience of, of china chinese food in particular was cantonese we had you know quite a lot of Cantonese people coming over there and cooking Cantonese food. So we go, oh yes, that's Chinese food. Well, actually, that's Cantonese food. <laughs> and you know, you it's, you've got different dumplings and and all that kind of thing. And I'm not quite sure how it works in in other Chinatowns, the diaspora who've gone around the world, um, and obviously Singapore as well. But I mean, just bringing it uh, a bit nearer to home, it was occurring to me before the podcast that apart from being an ancient civilization, China has always been very practical and actually very good at business. So if you see where Chinese people go, they tend to do extremely well at business. I mean, Singapore being a prime example. Singapore was a complete mess in 1965 or when it was the British pulled out. It was a sort of just a, a rubbish kind of you know naval, naval port. Um, but now it's absolutely uh, impressive. So I think there's this kind of mysticism. People see oriental mysticism about China and, and China can be very complex. You can keep sort of zooming in fractally and fractally and never quite 
uh, get it. But at the same time, there's also a simple pragmatism, <laughs> Indeed, yeah, yeah. which is, OK, a business is supposed to make profit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah. Right. OK, well, we'll get on to profit uh, later. Um, hopefully Alipay makes profit. Sure, I can guarantee you that. Yeah. Uh, 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 yes, probably probably the sort of big abacus to sort of count count that or a large computer. But before we sort of uh, dive into the fintech um, in China, maybe you let listeners know either your career journey. How come you're here today as CEO of Alipay in the UK? Were you coming from a management consultant perspective or a technology perspective originally, or a banker? Or what's your background? Yeah, sure. So Mike, actually, I'm like uh, I think different from some of your speakers that actually I had a, a career of the technology industries. So I was, as mentioned, that I was um, born and grew up in northern China. However, I was uh, educated and working like in lots of different cities, countries globally. So I used to spend uh, um, two years in Tokyo. So I was in Hong Kong and Singapore for a while, and then uh, like um, I was working in Shanghai. I was uh, um, uh, I went to the business school in New York, and uh, of course London. So I spent uh, like past of the ten years of my career in London. So um, yeah, so I would say that you know I'm quite international from business and education perspective, and then like all my career is about technology. So I've been working for Alibaba Aunt Group for almost seven years. So before that, I was with Ecula Packer, then was Equinox. So it was always being technology. And then actually, I think from my career path, it explained a little bit about Aunt Group as well. So different from lots of fintechs in like you no know, other part of the world, I would say that uh, Alipay Aunt Group is quite technology driven. So that's why, like, you know, I was uh, uh, like started the career as an engineer in the networking, the data center, and then cloud. And, and then actually before uh, I started lead the business for Alipay UK, I was actually um, uh, in charge of Alibaba Cloud's business in UK. So, yeah, basically my career path is a very technology oriented career path. And this is how Alipay is that our focus, our advantage is not in financial service, but instead is how we can use technology to solve the daily request requirements of uh, people's life or business needs. And this is what became who we are today. Uh, it's interesting, actually, because I was just reminding myself this morning, talking of China, of Joseph Needham's amazing seven or 27 volumes, depending on the account, it's Science and Civilization in China, which he published in the middle of last uh, century, which is a phenomenal thing. And uh, I was reminded that Francis Bacon, one of the um, pioneers of enlightenment and science in this country in, in the 17th century, he gave us an example of um, the enlightenment and, and scientific progress in the West. I think three things, all of which were invented by China long ago. So China has got a, a very long tradition of being excellent uh, technology. So we will hear a little bit about that in the dessert course, and, and in particular, this interesting thing from a fintech perspective for fintechs all around the world, that actually um, you've got a, a platform which serves lots of users, and then with good technology, you can add to that platform things which aren't immediately obvious. I mean, notoriously, for example, I thought Jeff Bezos was crazy when he said that Amazon's going to do more than books. I thought, no way, you, you do books really well, man. <laughs> so it shows what, what I know, um, and plenty of people over here. Uh, Tom from Monzo was on many years ago, and his aim was to make Monzo your personal financial platform. Mm. Well, great aim, but the execution didn't work. Now, clearly, you guys are really good at execution because you're making it work as a technology company. So we'll, we'll come back to that. So before we dive into the sort of sectors and the, the geographical breakdown of fintech in China, Maybe you give us a little bit of background about what you see as the history of fintech in China. Now, fintech, as I always have to say in these circumstances, is a very silly word used to mean different things by different people. And some people say, oh, fintech started in the 1960s when computers did you know, bank statements and stuff like that. But I'm kind of meaning it in the 21st century way that you've got these innovations due to changes in technology like cloud computing, like mobile phones. And you've got these of financial service businesses growing up outside the traditional banking. And of course, traditional banking was very different in, in, in China in the 20th century from, say, uh, America. So you've got this complex background. So maybe if you could give us a little bit of a background, a little bit of an overview, perhaps of the last sort of 20 years and, and when it really took off. I mean, in the UK, it started growing about 2010 here. And then oh, I started the podcast in 2014. No one really cared. So actually, it's only within 10 years that fintech as a fintech thing has really got going. But what's it been like in um, China? 
Indeed, yeah. So, uh, Mike, actually, I, I fully agree with you that it's like, uh, uh, if I look back to the uh, fintech industry in China for the past 20 years, at that time when we started it, actually, we don't know it, it was a fintech. Nobody knows how to call them, but doesn't matter. So, I think what matters is that, uh, like, you know, at that time, uh, like almost 20 years ago, that uh, um, uh, Alibaba Group just started a new business called Taobao. So, you were talking about my years. So, I got it from Taobao. Taobao is a place that uh, literally you can get everything you need from. And it, there's lots of different options. So when 20 years ago that Taobao as an e-commerce platform was funded, um, so except the Euro uh, challenges with the e-commerce platform, actually one of the major um, issues we are facing is that we need to find a way to make the payment. You know, we got the seller, we got the buyer, but how can we, can we pay each other? Because uh, the, uh, the card uh, coverage uh, in the population at the time is very, very limited. It's still limited today, but much better than 20 years ago. So, you know, there's no card, there's no ready solutions. So if we want to go the e-commerce business, uh, we have to find a way to enable the buyers and the sellers to do the transaction with each other. And then like, you know, they have to have confidence that the, if the buyer send the money, he or she will get the goods. Well, for the um, sellers that if he or she send out the goods, he need to have the confidence that he will get the money. So actually, that is the time that we stand out that created the first word of Alipay. So that was, yeah, more than 20 years ago that just started from a simple problem, then we figure out the solution. And then in the past 20 years, then like, you no, know, we're trying to improve the solution. And then along the side, there are other needs. So that's why, like, you no, know, we got, uh, uh, like, you no know, start from payment only that we start to add other factors into this, uh, such as Huawei, which is equivalent of buy now, pay later. Um, we have the investment product. And uh, to be fair, except uh, Alipay ourselves, I think I want to talk about uh, our successful peers as well uh, in the China landscape. So, uh, like, uh, again, like, you no, know, this is how Alipay started. We started from the customer needs. And then, like, you no, know, similar story happens with WeChat Pay. WeChat Pay is actually part of the Tencent group, as you know, that uh, so WeChat Pay is very successful in China in terms of fintech as well. So again, that uh, different from uh, um, Alipay, but similar as Alipay that WeChat Pay wasn't started as a fintech company. WeChat Pay start, uh, started as uh, like, you know, uh, a company doing lots of interesting uh, games and then gradually they have grown themselves into the different sectors. They uh, started WeChat as a, a very popular tool. It's something very similar to the way of WhatsApp doing, but they have added different factors into it, include the payment. Again, it is because there's the customer needs and then they figure out how is the best way to sort the customer needs. So I think like, no, by taking Alipay, WeChat Pay, and there's Ping An's group. So by taking this, all the different examples, I would say that the um, FinTech history in China is quite different from other countries. That wasn't a genius, you know, a super smart product manager who planned everything out. It's not like that. It's rather that, uh, well, we do the um, e-commerce business. Well, uh, Tencent was doing the, uh, uh, like, you know, uh, chatting business that we see there's a customer needs. And then we figure out a way with the use technology as the accelerator to make that happen. So I think that probably is how it looks like for the fintech landscape in China. Ah, interesting. So the, the deepest roots of fintech in the way that we use the word in the 21st century are very parallel to the story of PayPal, which is a, online commerce happened. There were some companies hanging around that thought, oh, everyone's having a problem paying. They solved that particular problem. And then I think from what you're talking about, that what dis distinguishes the development of the Chinese payments platforms compared to in America, which is that PayPal these days is still pretty much doing payments, whereas in China there's been more uh, diversification. And we'll get on to the, the various verticals, the various sectors of fintech within China in a minute. But obviously, without going too much into history, uh, at a certain point in time, China imported, I presume, because I always assume that Zopa invented it in 2005, the peer-to-peer -peer lending, which is a, you know, a, a deposit product and then a lending product on the other side, which came along a little 
later as well. And in that context, I mean, I don't think we need to dive into it too much, but in that context, one of the differentiating factors from between China and, say, say Europe and America, is certainly in the UK and America, the banks have a stranglehold and have had for, I don't know, centuries, centuries, a stranglehold on this sector. And ever since we went off the gold standard, which hopefully the BRICS may introduce in some small way soon, unlimited printing of money over here has caused all, caused all sorts of problems. So over here, it's been very difficult for fintechs. Let's just take Zopra as an example, or Ratesetter or others in the peer-to-peer market. They said, look, we'll give you a good interest rate, whether you're a borrower or lender. But they couldn't really take off because the, the banks own 99.99999% of the market. In China, one of the distinguishing factors is that consumer lending wasn't such a great thing, such a huge market in the, in the late 20th century. So there was more scope in some areas for innovation and for new technologies to come in and be more successful. And I think certainly this is one of the things that Peter said uh, when we, and we were last talking about China on the show, which, which is that there wasn't a sort of huge, I don't know, let's take America. There wasn't a huge Citigroup or, or JP Morgan o- owning everything. And, you know, they're like some hugely important people and you're trying to sort of squeeze into the table with them. No, there was sort of more, you know, white space on the map and areas to be covered, not just payments. But before we dive into the sectors, maybe you, uh, you give us a little guide to the key uh, geographies. I was very interested in India. I think there were sort of four areas where you could go to good fintech parties if you wanted to meet fintechers and, and talk about fintech in the evening. But uh, again, just using whatever definition you want, which areas, which cities in China uh, are the major ones for fintech? Yeah, so I, I think like, you know, um, um, so we can either talk about it city levels or we can talk about region levels. And like Mike, you mentioned earlier, that China is such a vast country. So uh, from geographic, um, uh, like a perspective that we can see there are three major uh, clusters of cities that like you no know, fintechs really matters. And uh, uh, like the, those cities, talent from those, those cities really played important roles. So um, the first and foremost is definitely Beijing. Beijing is uh, the capital of China and uh, more importantly that you know there are uh, dozens of uh, leading like universities in Beijing such as uh, Tsinghua University, Peking University so as a result that uh, Beijing does have this advantage of this enough talent pool. So as a result, that you know there are uh, there is a very active uh, fintech ecosystem in the Beijing areas. Like you know there are startups there like uh, almost every month, every year. So that is one important one. And then like in around the center of China, there's Shanghai and Hangzhou. Very proudly to say that you know Alibaba as a, a company, uh, aunt group, we're both from Hangzhou. So I, I don't know, Mike, have you been? to Hangzhou? No, that's that's the northwest, isn't it? Yeah, so so in that case, you know, we have to invite you into Hangzhou. So like, you know, um, so you know a lot about the like, you know, uh, cultural history about China. So uh, historically and culturally, Hangzhou is a very important city. So Hangzhou and Shanghai, those are the two cities very close to each other. Um, Nowadays, with the express train, it only takes about uh, one hour to commute between these two cities again. So this is uh, the uh, cluster. Uh, of places that uh, on one hand that you know, you have a lot of international business with their headquarters in Shanghai, especially for the financial service business. On the other hand, actually Hangzhou is the capital city of this uh, province called Zhejiang province. So Zhejiang province has been historically a place that uh, people are very pro-business and there are lots of uh, like you no know, uh, famous business persons, famous business group over there. And then when um, the Alibaba e-commerce platform was started, actually uh, more than half of a lot of the suppliers were from that Zhejiang province. So there is a very strong uh, historical, culture, and business background for Hangzhou to become the capital of fintech in China. Well, like you no know, Hangzhou benefited from Shanghai from this uh, core cool economic area as well. And then um, I would say that to be fair, the cluster around uh, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, um, uh, Hong Kong, you know, that is another area which matters with uh, like you no know, fintech as well. Actually, uh, Tencent has their headquarters over there. And then in Hong Kong, we have our Alipay Hong Kong wallets, which is part of the A plus scheme that I will talk a little bit uh, 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 later. So I think all of these three clusters of areas and cities matter quite a lot in the fintech development in China. Interesting. Well, before we move off geography, I think I'm um, going back to 
everyone misunderstanding everything in the modern world. It's very easy, if you haven't been listening to the podcast or similar, to misunderstand America. So America is a country. Everybody knows what you mean when you say America. Everyone, most people know where it is on the map. But the interesting thing I found, especially doing insurance, but I think also the peer-to-peers in America, which is that, ironically perhaps, America is still quite a bit of confederacy rather than a federal thing, by which I mean, if you're in, let's say, Europe, which is still very, not very nation states, less than it was, somewhat nation states, um, but there's sort of, you know, regulation on open banking, for example, and that applies across Europe, and that's your open banking regulation. But in America, if you're an insurance company in particular, and I remember the pain of these, which is that there isn't an insurance regulator who says, yeah, you're fine, go and insure things all over America. No, you've got to get one on state by state by state by state, which is a really tedious process. And, and there were sort of similar things, problems in, in banking in America, which has really held America back. So actually, although America from the outside looks like a country, you end up having to get 52 licenses on some activities. Is it the same in China or is China uh, the question that you get a license and that license is for China and you don't have to go to each province and see a local regulator and say, oh, hello, local regulator. Yes, I'm in 24 provinces, but I haven't done yours. And then you start all over again. So I would say in that case that, you know, we do have an advantage in China that is like a one uh, like a unified regulators and they like, you know, when it comes to different sectors, it is one license. But it's not a, today, right? You know that uh, from 2000 years ago, from the Qing dynasty, we already uh, like, you know, started this culture of like, you know, um, we even though that uh, there are like, you know, lots of different provinces, it's uh, lots of different cuisine, but, uh, you know, it is one central system. Right, it's a great advantage because once you've got your license, you've got your license um, compared to uh, America. And, and yes, you don't, don't let's not get sucked down the uh, the rabbit hole because one of the interesting things I found about reading about Chinese history quite some time ago, a few decades ago, was the whole cyclical idea of that history in China. The West, as you know, or sort of certainly the UK and its offspring, its problem child in America, has this linear thing: progress, Whig history, progress. It's, everything keeps getting better and better and better. Uh, well, we're seeing that it doesn't necessarily do that, not now, not in the 21st century, not for America and, and Britain and, and Europe, but um, but China with things like the Qing dynasty. And, you know, it, it expands and it, and it sort of contracts and falls apart and expands and contracts. And so a, the cyclical um, idea is not one. But let's not get sucked down the cyclical one. I'm here to talk about fintech. I shall discipline myself. Right. So, Eva, so what are the major subsectors within uh, fintech in China and could you give us a little bit of idea of, of those which are the important ones who some key, key players are and or what's going on at the, at the moment yeah sure and again like Mike as a like you know have the uh, like story out for the fintech histories I think uh, when they come to the fintech sectors in China it's rather instead of like you know manually we divide them into different sectors it's more about uh, what are the uh, like areas that uh, people need technology and the like you know uh, players such as ourselves and other peers made it possible so as you can imagine the first and the most the largest one is payment because the payment is a sector that you need it on the daily basis no matter you are like you know a millionaire billionaire or you just live a normal life that you need to make the payment so that is the largest sectors and i would say that there's almost the base line of all of the other different business rolled out. So on top of uh, uh, the payment, then like, you know, people uh, like, uh, so as you can imagine that when you have uh, like enough money in your digital wallets, the next thing for sure you want to get is some interest. So the kind of uh, similar as a saving account. So that is uh, the second sector so it says that that is about uh, how you can do the saving, how you can do the investment. And on top of that is about the investment. And then on top of that is like a, we used to call it a micro loan. Well, like a, I think in recent years, people tend to quote as a buy now, pay later sectors. So that is where like, you no, know, no matter it is individual consumers or when they come to the business that like a, um, in certain point, you just uh, like you no know, get some actual uh, money, actual loss from the uh, from the system. Yeah. So um. So I would say that those are the major sectors that uh, technology make a difference, uh, like to people's life. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an, an interesting uh, overview already. You know, I can see that uh, my my Western mentality of sort of segmenting things along sort of verticals along these different uh, uh, silos. 
um, which is relatively useful in London. FinTech isn't so useful in China. But just to sort of zoom in and, and, and look at a few more pixels and, and, and more information within all of these things, if I'm a, a typical person in China, some professional, what kind of things can I be using my, my phone for? What kind of companies are there? Do I just have one app that does, does everything? What's the actual experience like for, for consumers? Um, has, it, has the market consolidated in, in all of these, what I used to call verticals, but things like, okay, let's call them segments. Investment is one thing. Lending money is another thing. Payments is another thing, even if the companies that do them cover the, cover the lot. Yeah, Mike, I, I think I probably like uh, um, have to answer the question to into two steps. So first of all, I will talk uh, in details in depth as you asked for some of the sectors. But then more importantly, that I actually want to introduce something called a super app. I, I'm sure that you heard about this before, right? No, no, <laughs> my apps are pretty rubbish. They're not super at all, actually. <laughs> yeah, so actually, um, like, you no. Know, if I show you my Alipay app in front of you, sorry that, you know, it's a different uh, direction. But it, basically, you know, this is super app. Right. So basically, for all of those people listening to this and, and not seeing it, so I've got Revolut, which comes the nearest, perhaps, to doing something like this. And, and Revolut, as I was just complaining about in the last podcast, it has lots and lots of features, but they're so hidden away, I can't really find them and I can't be bothered to look, look them up. I'm sort of, you know, not very good at using phones, maybe. But actually what you're just showing me there is much, much more of a sort of, you know, well, let's say 20, a good dozen plus different functionalities with, within the same app. So so maybe explain super apps, because I do think we have super apps in Europe and I'm not sure America has super apps because of the segmentization, because there's the silos, which may have come from the whole structure of banking and insurance historically in, in these countries. So let's just dive into the whole super app thing then, which I think is pretty unique to China. I mean, I'm sure it hasn't cropped up in India or Africa, actually. Yet. Indeed, actually, Mike, I believe that Elon Musk has mentioned the ones. So for once that he wants to develop a Twitter now X into a super app. So I'm not sure about this, uh, like, no accurate news, but I definitely heard it uh, from uh, uh, Elon Musk before. So I think uh, basically, again, come back to the question you asked me about, you know, different sectors. So uh, I think uh, like, you know, by someone who's been living in London for almost 10 years that, you know, same as everyone in my um, uh, mobile phone that I have dozens of different apps. For example, I have Deliveroo if I want to order food, that I have Uber if I want to order taxi. I have like, you know, um, Revolut Monzo if I want to make payment. So this is how my daily life in London works. Well, if I go back to China, the only thing I need, and actually the only thing I have, is Alipay. So with Alipay, that we have something called a mini program. So, for example, that uh, uh, like if I, I want to order food, I can order it directly from my Alipay app, where the local uh, food delivery players such as Elema or Meituan, so they actually has their user. Uh, interface inside of Alipay. They do have separate apps for information, but uh, you know, instead of install separate their app, I can directly order it from Alipay. Or you know, if I want to um, get a taxi, so I can actually use DD. I can install this separate app called DD. But uh, again, that I can use it directly from my Alipay app. So as a result, actually, the craziest thing is that if you want to get married. Instead of go to the like you know uh, government places, you can order it from your Alipay. So, ah, <laughs> can you order a bride or a husband from Alipay as well? Or is that not there yet? Um, not yet, but thanks for the requirement. I will let our product manager do <laughs> <laughs> the case. Yeah. So as a result, it's like uh, there was hundreds of thousands of different mini program that has been resigned inside of Alipay app. So that is what we call it as a super app, which means that with one app, by doing one uh, one time of user authentication, you get access to all of the hundreds of thousands of different applications you need in your life. Ah, that's, well, that's fascinating. Well, I'm sure all the uh, listeners who know way more about FinTech than I do will have, will have heard of super apps. And I'm probably the only person in the world who hasn't uh, done the super app. But as I say, you, you sort of uh, waved it at to me, but maybe you just give us some example of the Alipay app of the actual mini programs and, and functionality. You've, you've mentioned some some of them, but just to give the listeners a feel for how rich the, the potential of, of this super app approach is. 
Um, yeah, so actually, um, like, you no, know, um, uh, for example, for um, uh, not only for the, uh, like, you no, know, Chinese consumers, actually for our Alipay users here in London. So, like, actually, it's normally targeted as uh, newcomers or tourists or students who actually um, just came to uh, London, like, you no, know, last week about to start a new life here, you know, for a couple of years. So, you know, he or she doesn't know where to fighting the food delivery, right? So he, she doesn't know delivery yet. So they can just like open Alipay and then find, like look for food delivery. And then like a couple of other mini program in that case can just jump out. I see. So how kind of international is Alipay now? I mean, your, your screen was Chinese. So if I downloaded Alipay, yeah. I wouldn't get very far because I'd sort of recognize the character for big and maybe the character for door and that'd be about, <laughs> that'd be about it. But is, is Alipay now an, an international app or is it sort of just still a Chinese domestic base and then Chinese diaspora who are around, around the world? Where, where are you on that internationalization scale? Yeah, so I, I get like, you know, two parts of the story. Um, so I've started from the shorter part and then the long, more complicated part. So first of all, if you look for Alipay as the app in the store, actually there is an English version there. So nowadays, if you go to um, go to China, if you go to Shanghai or go to Hangzhou for the uh, Asia Olympic happening very soon in next month. So actually, you can actually download the Alipay and then put your uh, like Visa MasterCard into it. So you can just uh, use Alipay to do any of your daily life. So you don't need to worry about, you know, I only have cash, how, what, what should I do? So this is actually one of the big challenges that uh, lots of our foreign friends met when they get into China because, uh, you know, that like uh, not every place is accept card, not every place is accept cash. Or alternatively, alternatively, I would say that most places nowadays only accept digital wallets in QR code. So if you go to China, download the Alipay app, get your credit card into it, then you can just just like, you know, do your daily life. So that's the inbound part. But more importantly, myself and my team, we're doing the other part, the internationalization about how we grow uh, Alipay business out of China. So um, by talking about like, you know, uh, UK specifically that we are building this um, a solution called Alipay Plus. So this is a digital payment and marketing solutions. So by doing Alipay Plus, it's not that we do a Alipay APP in UK. It's not that game. So our game is that by building this core platform, on one hand, we have mobile partners. For example, in Asia, we have a lots of partners such as Kakaopay from Korea. We have Chumani from Thailand. Um, and then in Europe, we have Tina Bar from Italy. So on one hand, you have all of these mobile partners. On the other hand, you have the uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, acquirers and the millions of merchants. So both of them can like work with each other through our Alipay Plus network. So this is the work that uh, we are doing right now. Oh, interesting. Well, you'll have to send me an email. I'll have to download the Alipay app when I can uh, get rid of delivery and all my banking apps and things like that. And um, just in terms of similarities and metaphors, I mentioned Jeff Bezos before and Amazon when he went from doing books to doing all these crazy things, which I thought wouldn't work. <laughs> but Amazon now is actually a kind of, well, let's call it a super app, but I'm not exactly in the way you're using it, but it's kind of because you go to Amazon and actually you end up buying from different, different merchants. They're just pulling all these things together, doing the logistics, coordinating it. So actually, when I'm when I'm purchasing things, I go to to Amazon and they've sorted all that out. So I think in in a similar way for people who don't know about super apps, maybe there's a, a parallel with that. And interestingly, um, the previous podcast with Gonzalo from Renewal, they've got an app, but actually mainly they're white labeling it. And I should maybe put you in contact with 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 Gonzalo. Um, they're labeling it to manage your insurance portfolio. So they've got a so they're they're selling their technology to um, banks or perhaps such as yourselves, and you can, you can have a mini app there, and you can manage your house insurance and your car insurance, and it sorts all of that out. So 
I think that sort of uh, same mentality. Well, that's very fascinating, and it uh, definitely reminds me of what uh, Peter Renton said to me five years ago, that if you want to know what fintech's capable of, go to China, don't go to America, and, and, and for the avoidance of doubt, he's American these days, I mean, he came from Australia originally. Well, that, that's very fascinating. Um, it's not something I caught on. I mean, just one point uh, of interest in terms of going back to the, the domestic market, and before we sort of look at the, the, the future and then wrap up with shout-outs for um, Alipay, obviously a big thing in Europe and also the UK, I'm not sure it's in, the, in America, but never mind, has been this whole open banking data, um, which uh, has uh, enabled various functionalities and a new lease of life for various sort of fintechs to do, I don't know, credit ratings better, as the episode before last touched on, or for the sake of argument, I don't do this, but if I if I just press the right button, I could get all of my different bank accounts consolidated in an overview. So does China have any equivalent to this sort of open banking data uh, regulation or infrastructure? Uh, yeah, so actually, um, as a business that based in UK that we are very excited about open banking, I think like, you know, FC and European regulators have done a great work to make this happen. I think like uh, open banking played a very important role to help lots of fintech to strive and, and grow themselves in this market. So yeah, like uh, we are very excited about that. Then, uh, and actually, um, so uh, we would like to work with different partners um, in the um, UK and European market to uh, uh, leverage that, uh, like, you know, um, technology as well. Yeah. But that doesn't exist in China. There isn't, there isn't yet an open banking thing. Not that I'm aware of. I think in China that uh, one thing that we've been keep talking about, um, I, I think uh, on one hand is about exclusion finance, which means that how we collaborate technology to not only helping people who like you know, living in the city, but the people who live in the countryside who doesn't have access to the uh, compre- comprehensive technologies. So that is one important part. And it's a, another thing we would do. Uh, we've been uh, like investing quite, investing quite a lot is in the ESG areas. Again, I don't know whether you have heard about the Ant Forest story. That is. Uh, Beautiful, beautifully done that. So uh, basically, like, you know, as an Alipay user, if you plant, so uh, like, you know, if you have a very environmental uh, lifestyle, for example, you take a bus instead of driving your car, um, you uh, use a digital uh, receipt instead of printing something out with, uh, with paper, then you will get some extra energies with your own forest. So you have a you have a trim here. So as soon as you have enough uh, like uh, energies, you can plant a tree in your app. So if individuals, you plant a tree uh, in your app, the aunt group will plant a real tree. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I was about to about to ask you to wrap up this section by uh, about the future of fintech in China, but uh, I think the future yeah. of fintech everywhere is already in, in China. But So maybe we should know where you think it's going in the next sort of, you know, three, four, five years. I mean, given that you've got the super apps all, already, my imagination is, is running a bit short, but... Uh, Having said that, I'm sure Ant will be doing something interesting in uh, in, in five years' time. Where, where do you see developments? Um, I think, like, again, that um, same as you, Mike, be honest with you, that uh, I think for one hand that, uh, like, we are definitely technology-driven. So what is very clear for us is that we set out the focus areas of technology, as you can imagine, in, in, including the uh, computing technology, the private privacy, computing, uh, about the green tech. So that is something we're 100% sure. On the other hand, in terms of what is going to be the new application. So in that regard, we'll, like, we will keep doing as what we used to do, that we will let the customer, let the market to lead us in the right direction. Yeah. Well, we are very solidly um, uh, like rooted in our technology development. Actually, one interesting thing that I want to mention is about uh, the large language model. As you know that, you know, this is a, a super whole topic. Everyone is doing it. As you can imagine, we are doing it as well. So uh, with Ant, our LL model's name is called Zhenyi. So I, I think, Mike, you probably can recognize it's a, a, a female's name. So actually, this is one of the female scientists who lived about 200, 300 years ago. Yes, I don't know her that well. <laughs> I don't know this lady either. So, But I googled her up. You know, she's a typical educated Chinese female that, you know, she studied in science. She is very talented in writing different poems. Maybe I should send one of her poems to you. 
Yes, thank you very much. As you say, then, so LLM is a huge thing in itself. Okay, so before we wrap up the show, uh, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Thenlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So, Eva, you've given us a fascinating introduction and I'm thinking that maybe my research should have lasted more than three minutes, 42 seconds beforehand. <laughs> uh, but I, I was aware that, I was aware at the back of my mind that one of the distinguishing factors of, of fintech in China compared to other regions is how technology driven it, it has been, firstly, but also secondly, how good the execution of that has been, as I say, not just in, in Monza, but uh, in plenty of places around the world. People have had aspirations to do, say, super apps and uh, amazing things, but they haven't actually managed it. So it's technology driven, but it's extremely well executed. And maybe you'd like to just wrap up with more of the local stuff and shouts outs rather than shout outs for <laughs> Alipay around the world. And perhaps let us know what uh, Alipay UK need more of to be even bigger and better tomorrow. Um, and uh, the direction of travel for Alipay's internationalization in, in general. I mean, you know, I didn't ask you, but maybe you can explain, does Alipay, how many offices does it have outside China? So maybe tell us about the international aspect of uh, Alipay um, and then what you need more of, which listeners should be checking you out or contacting you. Uh, with their, their apps to incorporate and, and this kind of thing going forward. Mike, thanks for this opportunity. So so we actually, um, with Ant International, that we have uh, more than 20 offices outside of mainland China that covers all the major countries and the markets, include the UK, Europe, Singapore, uh, Japan, and a couple of other Asia-Pacific countries. And this is um, like here in UK, in London, we have this uh, like beautiful office, New Bank Tower. So let me know when you come to London next time, I will host you a tea session here. So um, for part of our growth plan here that Alipay Plus is one of the most important strategy for us, as mentioned that with Alipay Plus that we want to work with uh, like on one hand, the mobile partners, on the other hand, the acquirers and merchants. So for anyone who is interested to uh, like do business with Alipay, our door is always open. You can either find me from uh, my LinkedIn um, uh, like a page, or I'm sure like, you know, um, uh, Mike, there will be a contact left in the podcast later, right? So we are open for business. We want to work with mobile partners. We want to work with acquirers. We want to work with technology providers. Yeah, so let's make uh, UK as a, the, the, the fintech hub of, uh, of, of like, you know, Europe and more importantly, globally. Yeah, so we we have a lot of confidence in UK and we are keeping investing in UK market as well. Ah, well, that's fascinating. And it certainly will make the international fintech much more interesting to have alternatives outside the kind of USE banks and, and, and their kind of system. And there's obviously lots of context to this, but in terms of things like de-dollarization and the growth of BRICS and multipolarity and many options and all that, I think that putting the sort of the global geopolitics to one side, I think it's always the case that more competition is a good thing for everybody. I mean, that's what the Olympics, you mentioned the Olympics, that's what it thrives on. If you had the Olympics with two countries, they wouldn't really try very hard. But when you've got everybody there, um, that's aspirational. And it's not just the competition and trying to beat the company next to you, but also it's the sharing of ideas and possibilities and technologies. And so that um, ideally the consumer gets served ever better. So thank you very much for that, uh, Eva. It's been quite a, a long episode, but uh, China is quite a large country. And I think that in many ways, China, because of its sort of middle kingdomy, somewhat inwards looking thing over the last yeah. couple of thousand years, it's a really interesting time. Apparently it's an interesting time in feng shui terms, actually, for, for, for China in, in this century. Um, but I think even if you don't know feng shui at that level, um, I think you can work that one out for yourself. And, and I remember, I'm reminded of uh, talking of history, just to end up with history, apologies for my pronunciation as usual, the Zhenghe treasure ships, which were something like 15th century, um, going back to China's Great Leads. 
um, Zheng He was, I don't know, minister or something, and he set out in a bunch of ships and, you know, huge ships and fleets uh, around sort of um, uh, Southeast Asia. And uh, yes. if the emperor had had rather sort of a different opinion or the Ming's, Ming dynasty, I think it was at the time, uh, had a different perspective, then actually Southeast Asia and perhaps the rest of the world would have seen a Chinese empire rather than British empire, which came to to dominate large parts of the world, but they changed their mind and it went home and Zheng He was kind of covered up pretty much for centuries in China and China has looked rather uh, inwards. And I think the, the, the amazing stat on that, which sticks in my mind to this day, which is that no ships as big as the ships that China built in the 15th century, no fleets as big as the fleets that China built in the 15th century were seen until World War I with all the battleships. I mean, that's how many centuries it took to get anything on that scale. So yes, um, Chinese history has been uh, cyclical, but China's always been very inventive. Uh, and when China has done something historically, it's done it uh, very well. And just bringing it back home to um, the FinTech story, I think that uh, it's very clear from what you're saying that I can only think of Amazon as a parallel, that just taking Alipay, that you've clearly done this very well to provide all of this functionality. I mean, I was joking about apps, but I get fed up of apps. I mean, I've got 99 on my phone, so what? I probably can't even remember half the apps I've got. So we've got to the stage of complexity growing, but actually from a customer, and this goes back to what Gonzalo was saying about renewal, from a customer, you don't want one insurance app and you're over here and you've got a banking app over there and a something else app over there and a something else app over there. A consolidation in the way that Amazon's done it seems a very interesting thing going forward. So I wish you and Alipay and FinTech in China every success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. I really enjoyed our conversation. We should have another one. Excellent. Good. I look forward to that too. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and FinTech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride To come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so gray With the pain of the Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Wave the city goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance with me.